One area of technology that is frequently in the news these days is rejuvenation biotechnology, namely the possibility of undoing key aspects of biological aging via a suite of medical interventions. What these interventions target isn't individual diseases, such as cancer, stroke or heart disease, but rather the common aggravating factors that lie behind the increasing prevalence of these diseases as we become older. Our guest on the podcast today is someone who has been at the forefront for over 20 years of a series of breakthrough initiatives in this field of rejuvenation biotechnology. He is Dr. Aubrey de Grey, co-founder of the Methuselah Foundation, the SENS Research Foundation, and most recently, the LEV Foundation, where LEV stands for Longevity Escape Velocity. Aubrey, welcome to the London Futurist podcast. Thank you for having me on the show, David and Callum. We're delighted to have you here, Aubrey. Aubrey, for listeners who may not know much about you, what features of your life and projects would you briefly like to highlight? I guess I always want to start with the thing I'm most known for, which is that about 20 years ago, when I had been working in the biology of ageing for about five years, I had a bit of a eureka moment and realised that the most promising way to postpone the health problems of late life would be not to try to slow down the rate at which biological aging happens, in other words, the rate at which the body damages itself as a consequence of its normal operation, but rather to repair that damage at the molecular and cellular level periodically so as to preempt and prevent the eventual consequences of having too much of that damage, namely the health problems of late life. And this was a very big paradigm shift for the field. It took me perhaps 10 years to really convince the field that it was a good idea, but that's very much in the past now. And of course, there's been a great deal of progress towards actually implementing that idea, both in my own organisations and across the world in other places. So I guess that's the main thing. Uh, Tell us about your concept of longevity escape velocity. Sure, yes. So it's no accident that the new organisation that I've created and that I lead is called the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation, because this is an idea which I first put forward nearly 20 years ago in the aftermath of starting to talk about damage repair as a way to postpone ageing. And yet, unlike that concept of rejuvenation, The concept of longevity escape velocity is still one that most people in the longevity field, at least in academia, find very alien and difficult to understand. But actually, it's a really easy thing to understand. The concept goes like this. Rejuvenation is damage repair. It is the process of removing various types of molecular and cellular damage from the body. In other words, reversing, uh, restoring the molecular and cellular structure and composition of whatever tissue to something like how it was at an earlier age, and thereby allowing that tissue to continue to function just as it does in a young adult rather than to exhibit increasingly impaired function. And the thing about damage is there are many, many different types of damage created by different aspects of our metabolism, and some of those types of damage, inevitably, are more difficult to repair than others. So it is highly likely that as time goes on, we will develop methods that work pretty well to repair some of those types of damage, but we will be decidedly lagging when it comes to others. 
So there will come a point when that portfolio of damage repair strategies starts to have some significant effect. Initially, it will be just too fragmented to have any significant effect, even if the individual types of damage are being repaired. But once we have a sufficiently comprehensive panel, we should be able to get maybe 20 years of extra life, of of postponement of the health problems of late life. And once we get there, we have bought ourselves those 20 years to take the next step and repair some of the more difficult components of the damage arsenal. Now, that means that 20 years down the road, we will be able to apply improved therapies, version 2.0, shall we say, to the same people who benefited from the first therapies 20 years earlier. And that means that we should be able to re-rejuvenate them back to an earlier biological age, even though if we were to apply the first-generation therapies again, they basically wouldn't work because we were already getting rid of the easy damage using those therapies over those 20 years. So the idea of longevity escape velocity is simply it's the minimum rate at which scientists need to carry on improving these therapies in order to stay one step ahead of the problem and allow beneficiaries of those therapies to remain biologically youthful however long ago they were born. Now, you said there'd been progress in the last 20 years. What can you point to to answer the critics who say this is just a fine philosophical principle, but nothing's changing in the real world? So, at the moment, we can point to really rather a lot. Ten years ago, I could not have been so bullish. I would have had to say, well, you know, there have been quite a few interesting, promising-looking breakthroughs in the laboratory, in laboratory techniques, such as, for example, the invention of induced pluripotent stem cells, and slightly under 10 years ago, the invention of CRISPR for gene editing. But really, this was all theoretical. These were tools as opposed to results. But increasingly, we have got to the point where we're seeing actual results. First of all, in the laboratory in mice, we are seeing not only the ability to increase mouse healthy lifespan and, of course, total lifespan by the methods that had been used historically, essentially by fasting, calorie restriction, or by methods that essentially do the same thing by essentially mimicking calorie restriction, but also now by bona fide damage repair, things like stem cell therapies or introduction of telomerase or introduction of senolytics, molecules that kill off toxic cells. These are things that are pretty, pretty new. These results have only come out over the past 10 years, in many cases only the past few years, and they provide a lot of encouragement. Furthermore, in the clinic, actually in human beings, we are seeing a few of these things already showing promising results. One of the companies most in the lead in regard to phenolytics reported just last year a, um, I'm sorry, this year, a uh, successful phase two clinical trial in macular degeneration, and there's many other trials going on right now. There are also clinical trials going on in stem cell therapy. The one that I'm probably the single most excited about is the use of iPS cells for Parkinson's disease to replace dopaminergic neurons, which is currently ongoing in Japan. There are a couple more trials about to begin in the US. So this is all pretty exciting. But I think it's very important to understand that we don't yet know how comprehensive we need our panel of interventions to be in order to reach longevity escape velocity. We're just going to have to keep on adding more and more components until we get there. In mice, it won't actually be longevity escape velocity because mice live such a short lifespan that we won't have time to improve the therapies fast enough but we will be able to reach something that I've called robust mouse rejuvenation, which basically says, take mice that are already in middle age, but not at death's door, so they've got maybe a year to live, and double that. 
so that they live an additional year. This is something that we at LEV Foundation have made into our flagship project going forward, flagship research program, I should really say. So I bought a thousand mice last week to do that kind of experiment. Just to be clear, why have you needed to create a new foundation rather than just let the rest of industry proceed along its previous trajectory with the results that you were describing? Well, the answer to that is actually, I could equally answer the question, why does any foundation need to exist? Why doesn't the private sector just get on with it and do everything? And the fundamental answer comes back to something I said a moment ago about some types of damage being easier to repair than others. At the end of the day, the private sector is funded by people who want to make money, and therefore they tend to be people who want to make money tomorrow. So, inevitably, um, the private sector is biased in favour of the low-hanging fruit. And, of course, one can certainly make plenty of money out of rejuvenation therapies even way before we reach longevity escape velocity. One can do so just by treating the subset of individuals who happen to be exhibiting a more rapid accumulation of one type of damage relative to another and who have particular health conditions. Even people, very unlucky people, who have congenitally based extremely rapid accumulation of this or that type of damage, such that they may exhibit aspects of aging even in childhood. So, yeah, there's plenty of money to be made that way, and that's the bias that inevitably exists in the private sector. Therefore, we have to have entities that push forward the pre-investable stuff, the more difficult stuff, so that it catches up. So that's the case for there being a foundation, but you've already created two other foundations, the Methuselah Foundation and the Sense Research Foundation. Why do we need Aubrey 3.0, as I've heard LEV Foundation called? Yes, that's one of the nicknames that I've given to it. I think it's really because the role of Sense Research Foundation has become perhaps a bit more mainstream. Not entirely at my behest, I have to say. And the result is that there are things that need to be looked at now and that we're ready to look at now that need to be looked at in a much more aggressive way than Science Research Foundation or the Methuselah Foundation are currently doing. This research programme, Combining Therapies in Mice, had its genesis in Science Research Foundation in the form of one project that is called CENO-STEM, which just involves combining two different things. But that project is being pursued in what I would have to call a rather timid, rather academic way. And I think we're in more of a hurry than that. We want to save lives as quickly as possible. I think listeners of this podcast will know that there's been some controversy over the last couple of years, and we do not plan to go into that in any great detail. Just to say that this is almost certainly true of David, it's certainly true of me, that I used to be a donor to Sense, and now I'm a donor to the LEV. I think Aubrey was very badly treated over the last couple of years. So I think we should just put that out there. And I have to declare an interest as well. I am sitting on the board of the LEV Foundation because I share your vision, Aubrey, that some things are too important to leave to the private sector and some things are in too much need of acceleration to leave to previous foundations, which are doing good work and should be applauded. But there needs to be more done, and which is why I'm happy to be here to ensure that the desire of many of the donors who have donated significant amounts of money, which they've made in various ways, including through cryptocurrency projects, they have expressed a strong desire to see you going as fast as possible. And I'm here to do what I can on the board with my board experience for multiple organizations over the years to try and smooth the way for that outcome. Thank you very much to both of you. What happened at Sense Research Foundation, even leaving myself out of it, 
was an emergence of a very great deal of difference of opinion between the board of directors on one hand and the bulk of the donors on the other hand, who very much wanted to, as you say, move faster. And the result has been quite a lot of brouhaha. There were uh, a number of the donors actually sued the directors because of the methods that the directors used in order to attempt to divert the foundation away from donor intent. And the result is that I set up LEV Foundation by handpicking directors who can be as relied upon as anybody to respect donor intent forever both because of past experience and credentials, but also because of the manner in which they've spoken out over the past 18 months to express the importance of such a thing. So I feel very happy and confident that the people I've brought on board, including yourself, David, as directors of LEV Foundation, are going to be able to instill great confidence in the donor community that there will never be a repetition of what happened at Science Research Foundation. So looking forward with great optimism, there's more money coming into the longevity area than ever before. Clearly not as much as it would be nice to have, but there is more. Do you now have a revised timeline about when longevity escape velocity might be achievable or perhaps when robust mouse rejuvenation might be achievable? Yes, I do. Well, I've been revising it progressively over the years. And it's quite important to look at the details of how that prediction has changed because it gives cause for quite significant optimism. I started making time frame predictions about these milestones something like 18, 19 years ago. My predictions back then, they're always probabilistic. I always say how soon we have a 50-50 chance of getting to such and such a point. So in the case of longevity escape velocity, my initial prediction 19, 18 years ago was 25 years into the future. And for robust mouse rejuvenation, I was saying 10 years. In terms of 90% likelihood, I was not willing even to put a number on it for longevity escape velocity because it could be at least 100 years, depending on what we hit. Pretty confident that we'll get to robust mass rejuvenation within 20 or 30 years. I could say 90% there. Anyway, so those were my predictions there. And now my corresponding predictions at 50% are 15 years for longevity escape velocity and three or four years for robust mass rejuvenation. So those are numbers a lot less than they were 18 years ago, but they're not 18 years less. So we have to ask what's gone wrong, where was I over-optimistic and so on. And the very, very good news is that if you divide that interval of 18 years into two and you ask, OK, how much did things slip in the first nine and the second nine, almost all the slippage happened in the first nine. I was still saying more or less 20 to 25 years, maybe 23 years, something like that, in the case of longevity escape velocity, and I was still saying 10 years for robust mass rejuvenation. And that was because, honestly, there had not been nearly comprehensive enough progress. There had been some progress, but it wasn't nearly comprehensive enough. Whereas since then, things have really speeded up. So then we have to ask, why? And the answer indeed is, 99% of the answer is money. That in the first of those nine years, the amount of money that I was able to attract to rejuvenation research was a very great deal less than I had anticipated back in the mid-90s when I spoke at TED and started getting wealthy people interested. Sorry, in the mid-2000s. Whereas in the past nine years, that has not been the case. Really, it all started maybe seven or eight years ago when a few people like Michael Greve and Jim Mellon and Vitalik Buterin started coming in both as investors and as donors and started moving things forward much faster. And now I would go so far as to say that if we look at the combination of the very large checks, like 10-digit checks that are being written by wealthy people in the private sector, 
combined with the very substantial checks, you know, at least eight digits being written in the philanthropic side of things, then it's fair to say that money is no longer the main rate limiter. The main rate limiter has more become talent, that there are not enough people with diverse enough expertise and so on to move things forward as they can. And that, of course, is, I'm focusing very much on that now as well. So when you say talent, what kinds of talent are missing? Is it people who know enough about biochemistry? Is it people who know how to wield a pipette or something else? It's mostly neither of those. We have plenty of professors and so on who certainly do know how to work a pipette, who have good technology, but who don't know how to run a company to save their lives. So even though they might like to spin out a startup and bring in investment, they're unable to because investors can see that they don't know how to run a company. So one of the big types of person that we need a lot more of is people with entrepreneurial talent. And it helps if they have a bit of biology background, but it's not absolutely vital, or at least only a little bit is is useful. But what matters is that they need to be able to talk the talk to investors and form partnerships with people who don't know how to run a company, thereby making a package that is attractive to investors and can bring in the money to get the company going. So I've been able to do that up to a point over the years, a few times, people coming to me with that kind of expertise and I've been able to kind of partner them with people. That's great, but it doesn't really scale if it's just me doing it. So a year and a half ago or so, I sat down with one of my very early protégés, a guy named Mark Hammerlinen, to talk about how to fix this. And the result was, I paid him a bit of money to focus on this, And the result was an absolutely breathtakingly successful workshop that was run a few months ago in the mountains outside of the Bay Area called Less Death. Less Death was a retreat, lasted maybe three days, and they had a dozen or so of the veterans of the field who had various expertise giving talks and generally being mentors. And the people who attended were maybe 50 or so newcomers to the field who were handpicked very much by Mark and his associates They were chosen because they had this or that type of existing expertise or talent. A lot of them were entrepreneurs of the sort I've just described. Some of them were other types of people. They all had, obviously, a commitment to and a desire to make a contribution in the longevity crusade. And they needed to know things and they needed to meet people. Two weeks afterwards, Mark did a little survey. It was a kind of survey where they say, did the event meet your expectations or exceed your expectations and so on? And it went off the charts. But on top of that... He had another question in the survey. It said, have you actually formed any partnerships or associations and so on that are allowing you to make a contribution in the film? And two-thirds of the people who came to the workshop said yes, after two weeks after the workshop happened. So, mind-blowing. Wow. And, of course, the result is that this is definitely going to happen again a few times a year, probably. The next one was just announced. It's going to be again in the Bay Area, in Marin County this time, on the beach resort. It'll happen in the middle of January. So, yeah, I'm absolutely overjoyed to have been instrumental in getting this kind of thing going, and I'm sure that it will make a huge contribution to the rate at which we move forward. So you've kind of started the Y Combinator for rejuvenation. Actually, talking of Y Combinator, they've been interested in this kind of thing for quite a while. They've actually put money into a number of the rejuvenation biotech companies over the past few years. Sam Altman himself got pretty excited about it. This is not entirely unrelated to the fact that Y Combinator is headquartered literally 100 yards away from Sense Research Foundation on the same street in Mountain View. But the point is now Sam has really gone large and he is the main funder of one of the biggest companies in this space, Retro Biosciences. So Y Combinator is definitely involved. And these less death events, they're taking advantage of funding that the LEV Foundation is providing effectively. 
Well, the first one did. The event was so successful that at this point, Mark and his co-leader of the thing, Nathan Chang, basically just don't need my money anymore, which is fine with me. I've got plenty of other things to spend it on. But yes, less death would not have happened in the first place without my help. Will there be less death in other places apart from California? Oh, very much so, yes. That's definitely the plan. Mark and Nathan want to take it global. And how can people volunteer to take part? Do they have to have a particular CV or there will be talent spotted? There's a website to apply to be one of the people who get this fellowship. I think if you go to lessdeath.org itself, that probably works. They're creating a slightly broader concept now that involves fellowships that are not just related to the retreat, but that's all just very much under construction right now, so I'm not quite sure what's online at this point. So as you make progress with these initiatives, Aubrey, more and more people are going to start to realise that it is possible that ageing can be reversed or slowed down and then reversed. And at the moment, very few people take that idea seriously. And bizarrely to me, a lot of the people I talk to about it, not only don't take it seriously and they don't think it will happen, but they actually don't like the idea. They think that dying is somehow a natural thing. What do you think will be the societal changes when more people realise, actually, we don't need to die, or at least we don't need to die so soon? It's bound to have some really serious impacts on the culture and on all sorts of aspects of life. Most people ask that question in terms of how things are going to be when these therapies actually arrive and are distributed to people. And that's a very hard question to answer. I mean, even by my time frames, we're talking 15 years away. A lot of things change in 15 years. So there's things we don't know. For example, how much progress there will have been in automation, which will completely change the way the economy works or in climate change. So there's a lot of things that I don't think it's really all that productive to speculate in too much detail about in relation to a genuine post-aging world. I think the only thing we can really say is that everyone's going to want this because no one wants to be sick, however long ago they were born. And so the consequences of that need to be worked through. But the way that I would prefer people to be asking this question is not that. I would like people to be asking the much nearer-term question, which is kind of implied by the way you phrased it, actually, Callan, Namely, what's going to happen when a large proportion of the population see that this really is coming and they are no longer able to put their heads in the sand and pretend that this is all science fiction? Because I believe that the transition from where we are today, where, as you say, the overwhelming majority of people treat this more as entertainment than as the future, to one in which they do see it coming, that transition is going to be very, very sudden. And the reason it's going to be sudden is because it's going to rely on a small number of people changing the rhetoric that they put out there. So, of course, I've been saying this kind of thing for a long time, nearly 20 years. A few people, a few of the more courageous colleagues of mine uh, who talk to the general public a lot, David Sinclair, of course, comes to mind, are saying things now that are a good deal more aggressive than they would have said even five or ten years ago. It would have been very difficult for David to write a book that was called Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To, even 10 years ago. But the bulk of people are still very much keeping their cards close to their chest in terms of what they say publicly. And that is going to change as a result of progress in the laboratory. Simple as that. Not even progress in the clinic, in the laboratory with mice. Once we achieve this milestone that I've been talking about called robust mouse rejuvenation, the bulk of my expert colleagues who are out there, like me, on stage and on camera, will be saying more or less the same thing that I say. They won't necessarily want to put the same time frames, maybe they won't want to put any time frames, but they will be saying like it's only a matter of time. And once they say things like that, Oprah Winfrey's going to start to say, you know what, let's save some lives and make it less time. And as soon as that happens, game over. 
So it's going to be very sudden, which means that my job now is to educate the policymakers and decision makers around the world to be ready. I call it anticipating the anticipation, to actually have some idea how to manage that process as we go through this anticipatory phase when most people say this is coming, but it hasn't actually arrived yet. Do you think any of the mainstream politicians, mainstream media owners are anywhere near thinking about this, taking it seriously? I mean, I notice now that some politicians are starting to talk about automation. They're starting to talk about a jobless future. And some of them are even saying, hey, it could be a good thing. But they are mostly retired ones or people whose stars have waned. And it's still nowhere near the mainstream. It doesn't appear in elections at all. And ageing as an issue is further down the track than that in terms of awareness. Well, you're quite right. And of course, we are doing our very best to change that and to accelerate the education of policymakers, decision makers. One of the things that I am supporting at LED Foundation is a group in the US that is specifically lobbying in Capitol Hill, in Congress, getting Congress people to understand the value of doing this work. In particular, of course, the economic value. A British economist named Andrew Scott has very much been leading the way on this in describing the longevity dividend. The concept of the longevity dividend, that it would be economically beneficial to postpone ageing, is a very easy concept to put forward and been happening for decades. But it's been very unsuccessful in really convincing politicians, largely, I believe, because they don't believe that the actual outcome of investing in longevity research will actually be any postponement because they believe that ageing is like gravity and can't be fixed. However, Andrew is dragging the economics of ageing, kicking and screaming into the 21st century by talking very specifically and explicitly about rejuvenation. He's doing it in a slightly step-by-step way. He hasn't really spoken about longevity escape velocity per se yet, but I am working closely with him to make sure that that happens. He's one of the most respected economists in the country, so that's the kind of thing that we need. Sounds like we should invite Andrew Scott onto an episode of London Futurist podcast. You are so right. Possibly also people from the lobbying organisation. Yeah, A4LI. That would be very appropriate. There are one or two politicians or political connected people who are talking in these terms. I believe Jared Kushner, the husband of Ivanka Trump, referred to this in a book that he wrote recently. So there are some people at least who are talking about it across the political spectrum. It's not a one-party thing. But what's going to accelerate it more is robust mouse rejuvenation. And you said, if I took the notes correctly, you think there's a 50% chance it will happen within three or four years. That's correct. Honestly, I wouldn't want to bet against it happening in one or two years, because we at LEV Foundation are probably going to be the people who achieve it. There are various other groups around the world who are doing combination interventions now and also focusing on late onset interventions But the other groups are being a bit more timid than us. They're mainly focusing on orally available drugs. In fact, they're almost exclusively focusing on that. So that essentially means that you're restricting yourself to things that will not really do rejuvenation. They will only be trying to mimic calorie restriction and things like that. And that's not going to cut it. We're being a lot braver, and so we'll probably do it. So the question then is, how soon will we do it? And of course, we don't know. But our first round of this is starting next month, uh, January anyway. We will take mice that are already in middle age when we receive them, about a month from now. And so the remaining lifespan, by default, will be in the region of a year, maybe around that time. So we could easily be looking at getting robust mouse rejuvenation only two years from now if we get lucky the first time through with the combination of four interventions that we're throwing in initially. 
But if we don't get lucky, we'll learn from it. In fact, we'll be learning from it during the whole process because we'll be measuring lots of health span data and such like as well. So we'll certainly be starting a second round of another thousand mice about maybe late next year. And that will just continue until we get there. And as the conversation between us draws towards a close, I'm guessing there must be some listeners who are keen to support making the robust mouse rejuvenation be more likely to happen sooner rather than slip out. So what can they do? What would you request of them? So, of course, the request depends on the person. It's always the case where people can support this financially or they can support it in terms of educating audiences, just as you're doing right now by interviewing me. There are all kinds of advocacy that are available, and, of course, scientists can choose which fields to go into. On the financial side, yes, of course, these experiments are expensive, much more expensive than most of the work that I've supported in the past in cell culture, because we've definitely got on to doing stuff with mice now on a large scale. And, of course, LEV Foundation, levf.org, has a website with a donate page, and we would very much be happy to receive as much as we can to support this work and accelerate it. Any other final remarks you think people should be bearing in mind? I think really it's all about being as educated as possible, as knowledgeable as possible about what's going on and about how rapidly things are progressing and disseminating that knowledge. As I say, advocacy is what it's all about. One project of LEV Foundation that I didn't yet mention is the Healthspan Action Coalition, of which we are the main funder. It is led by some extremely credentialed and prestigious people in the US who are focused not on politicians, but on the general public. I somewhat frivolously call the Healthspan Action Coalition the antidote to the AARP. It basically is all about getting the elderly especially to recognise that ageing is a medical problem that is within striking distance of being addressed. And the AARP is an American association for retired persons that's more accepting of ageing and helping people to age well, whereas now the conversation is changing. That may have been a sensible advice once upon a time, but it's no longer the best advice in town nowadays. That's exactly right. Well, Aubrey, I'd just like to say thank you for the brilliant work you've been doing for decades. Thank you for coming on to the show as well. Well, thank you again for having me. It's been a great conversation. Let's move this forward as quickly and as reliably as we can. Absolutely. Bye for now.